Hey there, Duke fans. It's time for episode 374 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am Jason Evans. I'm here for you today. It is the morning of New Year's Eve. It is December 31st. We are closing out 2021 and we're doing it in, in a way that uh, I never imagined would be as much fun as it's going to be. We asked you guys for questions. We opened up the mailbag and wow, you guys came through in a big, big way. There's just some, some real nuggets of gold. There's some great stuff in here and we are super looking forward to it. Before we get to the mailbag, um, I said I was Jason. You know who else is going to be here with me unless you are brand new to this podcast. What are you doing listening to a mailbag episode if you're brand new? <laughs> I, I don't No judgment. Yeah, no I, mean, judgment. Hey, I think that's I think that's fine. start wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. But there's no one new listening right now. No one on New Year's Eve is listening to a brand new podcast and starting with a mailbag episode. It's a great it's a great time to pick up new shows. You know, it's the it's the holiday new break. You might have man. too much time around family. You got to get yeah. away. You've you've all of a sudden decided now to become interested in Duke basketball. Uh, I think I think it would actually be more fascinating if you became interested in Duke basketball for the first time, like in the last few weeks, than decided that it was time to pick up a Duke podcast. But I digress. Yeah. Hey, maybe you're a big Adrian Griffin fan and you just found out that his son, AJ Griffin, plays basketball and you're like, I want to follow that guy. It, it could this happen. is it. Yeah. We, we figured out the scenario. In any event, you've already heard the, his voice. Sam Klein is with me. Sam, you getting ready for a big New Year's night? Uh, if by staying home and watching the college football playoff uh, counts as, big. as big New Year's. Is that big New Year's? I guess, Jason, you're in Georgia, so yeah. so it actually feels like a big deal to you, and Donald is a Michigan fan. So I have I have no particular rooting interest in the games today, but uh, I am interested in watching them. Yes, yeah, should be some good contests. Uh, Sam already mentioned Donald Wine is here. Uh, Donald, last thing I want to say to you before we start really doing the podcast, go dogs. Uh, you're going to say that to me. I, I hope you're wrong. I hope <laughs> this weekend we can talk about something else like Michigan in the national championship game, but let's play the game first. I will say this. Would you, let's start with the melancholy part. The reason why this episode is so fun is because of listeners like you out there who submitted questions. But the reason why we get to do this is because there's no basketball game tomorrow because it was, it was postponed. So uh, unfortunately we will be starting the new year off without a basketball game, but that's why we get to do this mailbag episode. I love it. Hey, and we're going to get started with uh, one of the people who emails us the most. David Kerman um, is a, a great fan of the podcast and, and just a great guy. And he's he's always reaching out to us. And he had and a fraternity brother of mine. Yes. So, uh, many year a few years before me. But I uh, have to have to mention that as well. Yes. Uh, we refer to him as the K-Man. And uh, David wrote to us with a couple of questions. The first one we're going to start with is this. He wants to know what current duke nba player is most likely to make it to the basketball hall of fame i'll expand on his question and say what duke nba player who's not currently in the hall of fame is most likely to make it so that if you want to talk about jj reddick you can and i i don't think there's a non-case i don't think jj red you know it's not like i don't think he's likely but um if you want to talk about jj i think that's that's allowed so uh donald i'll go to you first to answer k-man's question which Duke NBA player is most likely to make the Basketball Hall of Fame? Who isn't already there? Not including Grand Hill, of course. Yeah, well, it's funny. I, I think when you add the guys who are not in the hall that could possibly be in the hall down the line, and you know the, the hall is not something we're like, oh, if you're not in the first like five or six years, forget about it. You can get in in your 70s. So for that, I would say there's a couple of guys that stand out. J.J. Redick and Elton Brand. I Maybe Carlos Boozer, but I don't think 
I think Carlos actually, maybe if he goes through the broadcasting side of things, which he's in right now, that could be a possible way for well, him to get into the hall, as so, with JJ. Uh, yeah, so I was going to say, I think JJ is the guy who really, uh, because JJ sort of has a higher profile at this point in broadcasting than Carlos does. And Carlos is doing college mm-hmm. basketball. JJ is doing the NBA and he's doing it on ESPN. And he's already had a couple moments where people have been like, oh, this guy's really good. If, if he has a long broadcasting career, I think he could make the Hall of Fame. The reason I added JJ to our list was I specifically wanted to shout out the fact that I think the broadcasting career combined with him being one of the great shooters in NBA history, he's got a shot at it. I mean, the guy was like, I'm not sure if the guy ever made an all-star team. I don't think he ever did. He never, yeah, he never made an all-star team, but he appeared at all-star weekend to do three point shooting. And I agree with you, Jason, that, that his media contributions are important. And, and to go back to another name that Donald mentioned, I, I don't know if he's currently on track there, but Elton Brand has also been an executive as has Trajan Langdon and mm-hmm. uh, Shane Battier. So all of these guys could make it for contributions other than specifically those made on the court. Yes, but, but let's was- remind folks, K-Man's question was most likely. <laughs> and I don't think any of us would take any of those guys as the most likely. At least I don't think, I, I certainly wouldn't. So Donald, back, back to you, most likely, who you got? So I think there's three, maybe four answers to this question. And it, the three the three that are most definite, Kyrie, Jason Tatum, or Zion Williamson. I will also give shouts out to RJ Barrett. If he continues on his trajectory of, of scoring a lot of points for the New York Knicks, and if he wins a basketball championship for the Knicks, being a Knicks champion will automatically propel you into the upper regions of most people's minds, Certainly. especially the media, when it comes to things like you know accolades and future Hall of Fame uh, consideration. But I do think the most the current player who is most likely to make it, I, I think there's no doubt in my mind is Kyrie Irving uh, because of the fact that he already is a champion. He has been all NBA, all-star, perennial, uh, just literally has a lot of those. So I, I think it's Kyrie. So so really quick, I'm going to, I agree with you. When we got this question, I said there, there are only three answers, um, Zion, Tatum, and Kyrie. And, and, and my first reaction was, oh, it's Kyrie for sure. He's already got a ring. Um, but, but then I, I want to make the argument against Kyrie and, and my argument against Kyrie is, um, he's about to turn 30. He has exactly zero first team, all NBA selections. He's, he's made second team a couple times. And I think he made a third team. Um, but uh, he has rarely been considered one of the absolute top players in the NBA. Re- really good. Make no, no mistake about it. Um, but he's rarely been considered one of the top players, top, top players in the NBA. And, and like I said, he's turning 30 now. And, and I'm going to add one other thing. And this may be controversial, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think that, look, when Kyrie was the, the flat earth guy who, who was sort of, you know, into strange conspiracy theories, everyone kind of chuckled about it. You know, there's some people who were bothered. But I, I think Kyrie's stance on vaccines has tainted his reputation to some extent, especially among sort of. I guess you might say a more educated, a more erudite uh, segment of the population. And those, those are, a lot of those are the folks who are picking the Hall of Fame selections. And I think, you know, it, it shouldn't be this way. Off the court stuff can impact your, your ballot, so to speak. And I think Kyrie has damaged himself and he's already a fringe guy for the Hall of Fame. I, I, I don't think Kyrie makes it. I will say, I think one thing that does affect Hall of Fame votes, we see this a lot on the baseball side, is how players deal with the media. And 
as we know, Kyrie has been standoffish with the media at various points in his career. That may affect him. But what I also have seen over the years is that the basketball media is not as, uh, as sensitive, I'll say, as the yeah. baseball media. And, and baseball media will take, oh, this guy didn't answer my question back in 1967. He'll never get into the hall. But I think basketball media will, will look over some of the stuff that you just mentioned, Jason. Jason, I, I think your point about Kyrie being good, but not or great even, but not elite stands out to me. He's got the Rookie of the Year award from 2012. He's got an All-Star Game MVP award, and he's got uh, four or three All-NBA selections, none of which were, were first team. He was first team All-Rookie, obviously, the year that he won Rookie of the Year, but otherwise has been a second team All-NBA just once and third team twice. He's in, in, in to go back to baseball terms, because I feel like this is the, at least for me, this is the place where I think about the Hall of Fame the most. He's in what, what I think folks call the, the Hall of Very Good, um, but not the Hall of Fame to me. And, and, and to your other point, he is on the wrong side of 30. So yes, he will continue to score points, presuming that he you know comes back and plays eventually, because he's been out this season between uh, COVID restrictions and COVID protocols. Uh, but you know, he'll continue to score points. He's, he's obviously a mesmerizing player when he's healthy, but the, the lack of healthy seasons, his not actually being like the star on, on the team that, that won the championship, obviously a big part of that Cavs team, but not, not the star of that team, I think is going to prevent him. I actually don't think that Kyrie is going to make the, the hall of fame. And I think it's actually pretty unlikely at this point in his career. I want to go back to Tatum because Tatum to me feels like the most likely given his performance in the NBA so far and sort of where his trajectory is going. He's one of, if not the best players on a Boston team this year is kind of in the lower end of, of competing for the playoffs, but all signs for Tatum point to he's going to keep getting better. And he's at an organization that cares about winning and, and, and it seems like cares about him. Uh, so it, it seems like a relationship that's going to build to the point about how it's hard to sort of be top of mind for, for the hall of fame. If you're not in contention for championships, playing on the Celtics is, is great for Jason Tatum in that regard. Um, we also talked about Zion Williamson. I don't think Zion Williamson at this point, like at this moment feels like he's on a good trajectory. The there, there's all the, all the sort of bad vibes from, his injury and, and from the weight that he's put on, uh, I, I'm going to be very disappointed if, if his career does not turn out to be great, but I think it's a, it's a possibility right now. I think Donald's idea about RJ Barrett is actually very good. So right now I would, if I was going to rank him, I would say Jason Tatum is, is the most likely among sort of current players or, or, or recently retired players with RJ Barrett actually right behind him because there's a, to me right now, there's a path for RJ Barrett. And if Zion's not getting healthy, then he's not making the hall of fame. Um, and, and another name that I'll throw in there as a potential, a guy who's been in the league for a few years, but who seems to keep getting better and better is Brandon Ingram, who, uh, who went through some troubles early in his career, but in terms of like fitting in, but he has been, he's been excellent and could also continue to develop the same way that Tatum is, could lead a team to a championship. I could absolutely envision that one day. He's got a few more years of, of his sort of athletic prime left to, to prove that. So I wouldn't actually count Brandon Ingram out of the conversation yet either. Uh, can I throw in one more for consideration? 
we've been talking a lot about men who can make it into the men's uh, into the basketball hall of fame. Women can also enter the basketball hall of fame. Elena Beard, I think that name should be up for consideration. Donald, I love that you included that. All right, so it's time for my answer. Um, I already pooped on Kyrie a little bit. <laughs> um, I, I really think it's between Tatum and Zion. And the problem is I just don't know whether Zion's ever going to get healthy. If he does, I think Zion Williamson will be a lock for the Hall of Fame. Um, if, if you tell me that Zion Williamson is going to have 10 healthy years in the NBA, which is not asking a lot, given his age, you tell me he's going to have all I need is 10 healthy seasons. I think he is. We saw last year when he was healthy, he was doing things no one's done before in terms of his ability to get in the lane and finish. I, I, I just I, I don't know how if that guy is healthy, he's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, and 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 I think I think Tatum has. First of all, Jason Tatum's already got an all NBA selection. He's only 23. He's still several years from reaching his prime. I think he's going to have multiple all NBA selections uh, when, when, you know, by multiple, I mean like five plus when all is said and done. And I think it helps that he's playing on the Celtics, which is a really storied franchise. There's a non-zero chance that Jason Tatum goes down as the greatest scorer in Boston Celtics history. Um, think about that for a moment. That's a, that, that, that's a claim, but it's not, it's not crazy. Right. Exactly. So, so if I have to pick a most likely, I'm going with Jason Tatum, sort of like you guys. But, but if, you, if I can wish for Zion to have a little bit of health, if Zion's healthy, Zion vaults to the front of the list. No question about it. Yeah. No, I was going to say that none of the current Duke players seem more likely than that. Like Paulo Bancaro on this team feels like somebody who's going to have a, a long and productive NBA career. I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer. Right, right. All right, guys, so we're going to move on to another one. Um, and uh, this is a really interesting one. Josh in Toronto asked us, hey, should Duke lose a game this year? He, he said, you know, we, we haven't had a ton of challenging games leading into the NCAA tournament. And um, it, he, he says he would be concerned if Duke does not lose another game prior to the NCAA tournament. Um, he just doesn't want us to go in with one loss because he points out that a one-loss team has never won the NCAA tournament, a fact that I did not know. I, I, I didn't know that. So that's an interesting little factoid there from Josh in Toronto. Sam, I'll go to you first, and we can be kind of quick on this. What do we think? Should, should Duke lose a game between now and the tournament? I think the, the cautionary tale that you'd be looking at is Gonzaga from last year, where not that, that Duke this year is nearly as dominant you know, through the first third or half of the season the way Gonzaga was last year but all the talk about Gonzaga last year was all right they're going to play four or five really good games early in the season then they're going to run through a really not so great West Coast conference which is not the case this year this year they're actually playing in a, in a decent league but but Gonzaga basically spent two months beating teams that weren't that good before getting to the tournament they rolled all the way into the the final four where they then had their first you know, tough game in a long time against UCLA and then uh, which they barely edged out, right? They had to, they had to have a buzzer beater basically to beat UCLA who was an 11 seed. And then they played Baylor in the championship and Baylor waxed the floor with them. So that I think is the cautionary tale for Duke this year, because let's be real. It's a very similar uh, circumstance for Duke. The ACC is not, this year is not as bad as the West coast conference was last year, not, but as not, even noted, close. not even close, not even, but as we've noted multiple times, the ACC's 
probably not getting more than three or four teams in the tournament. And if Duke doesn't get to play that Clemson game from this week, that's one of those bubble teams that, that they're not going to get kind of reps against. So all of that being said, I'm not worried about it. I think that the, the, the program around Duke basketball, the preparation that they go through is good enough to overcome the, the lack of, of tough games. The, I think that, you know, a lot of the talk about, you know, getting tough road games and getting tested on the road is somewhat overrated for being prepared for the tournament because the tournament's not played in road venues. It's played on neutral courts and Duke excels at scheduling neutral court games early in the season against top opponents. So when it's time for them to, you know, play in the, in the second weekend of the tournament, hoping they get there, the most analogous thing to that is going to have been playing Kentucky in, in New York city or playing Gonzaga in, in Las Vegas. Those are the games that prepare you. So I'm not worried about, about Duke uh, like rolling too casually through the ACC. The other thing about it is that it's probably Duke is probably not going undefeated in conference this year. The, the ACC opponents, especially on the road, get so fired up to play Duke. The, the fans get fired up to play Duke. Everything is just a little bit harder so Duke is probably dropping a couple road games, even if they are seemingly a, a few steps ahead of the rest of the conference. So I'm not worried about it. I don't think it's going to happen, and I'm not worried about it. Yeah, my, my response to this question is, if, you, if you're going to tell me that Duke is going to waltz through the ACC without any challenges, without any games that force us to you know, sort of bear down and, and figure out a way to win in a close one, well, I'd, I'd maybe be concerned about that, but I think the odds of that happening are as close to zero as you can get. Look, we already, we already played Virginia Tech at Cameron, and they were leading in the second half. <laughs> I mean, it's not, like, it's not like Duke is beating the pants off of all these clubs. And, and Sam, your comparison to Gonzaga and the West Coast Conference, I mean, the West Coast Conference routinely has teams that are ranked in the 200s and 300s in Ken Palm. Right. So even, even that is not exactly perfect. It's not. Yeah, it's just not the same as the ACC. Uh, I've got no problem with Duke going into the tournament as a one loss team because I know that we will be tested along the way. It's uh, if if we if we go undefeated the rest of the season, we will still have tough games. We'll still have difficult circumstances. We'll still have games that do a good job of simu- playing Carolina at Carolina. Playing the ACC tournament, playing Florida State, these are games that simulate NCAA tournament games. I'm not worried at all about this Duke club winning all their games. It's just not something I'm going to be concerned with. Donald, your last word on this question. Do I think we're going to go the rest of the season with just one loss? No. Do I want us to lose a game so that we only that we have two losses in the tournament? God, no. I, I don't like losing. I don't want to lose. I, I, I don't expect us to win every single game but I expect us to win every single game, you know, if that makes sense, right? Like when I look at the schedule, when the season starts, I think, Hey, there's not one team that we can't beat on the schedule, but I also am realistic and say, Hey, we're going to lose a couple of these along the way because not, you know, nobody's perfect. It, it, everyone has an off night. It's just a matter of whether that, when that off night comes. And I just hope it's before March. Cause once March ha- happens, I don't want any more off nights. So no, I don't want to lose any other games, but I, I expect it may pop up along the way. Okay, another question uh, about the current Duke team, um, and it relates to last year's team. Eric Hedden wrote us and asked, who from last year would you want to have back on this year's team? 
Really interesting question. Guys, I, I'm actually going to tackle this one first, if y'all don't mind, host privileges. Um, and, and I'm going to say, first of all, I, I'd love to have all of them back. Um, hey, so, so suddenly Duke has a, as a 12 man, um, you know, is, is deep with quality players down to the, the 11th or 12th man. It wouldn't be a bad thing. So I'd love to have them all back, but let's be realistic. And let's talk about which guys would actually be getting significant playing time and helping us out. Um, I, I don't think Jordan Goldwire would help Duke all that much. Uh, this team has, the current team has really embraced Wendell Moore's leadership. And I think having another, you know, so sort of leader, which Goldwire clearly would be, I'm not sure that would help. And, and, um, and Duke has plenty of ball handlers on this year's team and we're doing a really nice job of playing defense already. So I don't know that Goldwire adds very much. Um, it's easy to say Matthew hurt and, and there's no question that his shooting makes him an obvious choice for this, but Matthew hurt was not much of a defender. And I think our, this team's identity this Duke team's identity is its ability to defend and, and be really creative um, on, on defense. And uh, I, I just don't think hurt helps with that that much. And I'm not sure if Matthew hurt was back, he'd be demanding playing time. I don't mean personally, I mean like his, his offensive capabilities would demand playing time, but I'm not sure giving him playing time would be helping this team all that much. So I'm not saying Matthew Hurt. I'm really tempted to say Jamin Brakefield, who's, who's versatile. His versatility, like, you know, when Duke goes small, Brakefield could be a part of that Duke going small lineup. And I think uh, a lot of the early season when A.J. Griffin was struggling, if we'd had Brakefield, he would have been getting those those AJ Griffin minutes and, and would have been doing something with him that AJ wasn't. Now AJ's now progressed pretty nicely and probably has surpassed what Brakefield would be. But um, I, I could see Brakefield. I, I just feel like as the season moves on, I don't know that Brakefield will be getting a lot of time. So I'm going to go with DJ Stewart. Um, I, I love his extra offense that he would give us on the perimeter. We've had games where our, our perimeter guys have struggled some. And, and I think, DJ, especially as a sophomore, his infectious smile, his enthusiasm would have fit in with this team perhaps better than these other guys. I, I would really love for Duke to have DJ Stewart back this year. That's that's my that's my one guy. Um, Sam, I'll go to you. I think you walked through most of the the kind of key points. One guy who you didn't mention was Henry Coleman, who obviously didn't play much last year, but who who Duke fans were, and all, all three of us were very excited to see develop. And it's a bummer. I, I think that, that we don't get to experience that. I'm kind of with you on Matt Hurt, where he was a very good player for Duke and has skills that I don't think anyone on this team exactly is able to replicate. The problem is that he basically plays the same position that Paulo Bancaro plays. And it would be hard to have them both playing extended minutes together because I don't know, like, as good of a rebounder as Paulo is, I don't know that you get enough rebounding if those guys are the primary four five. So yeah. Mark Williams doesn't have um, doesn't have much of a role on a team that has those guys. And I want I want there to be a Duke team where Mark Williams has has a, a, a notable role. The other thing about Matt Hurt is that if he's in the lineup, you don't you don't have Wendell Moore sort of required to shoulder more of the burden, especially on the ball handling this year. And I am more of a fan of Wendell Moore's junior season, I think, than I am of Matthew Hurt's sophomore season. And I don't know that Matt Hurt would have developed more than Wendell Moore did over the summer to overcome that. I think about, and I, I know I bring this 
I, I know I bring this example up often, but in after the 2009 season, Gerald Henderson left for the NBA. It was after his, his junior year. And it was like, he's good. He's not like, he's not like an elite player yet. I think he was drafted in the middle of the first round. And there was a lot of talk that like, there was a bit of a void on that roster that, that he left behind. Andre Dawkins came in uh, to, to backfill some of that, but the, as did, um, and Elliot Williams had also left after that season, but Gerald Henderson leaving and Elliot Williams leaving forced Nolan Smith to make all the, to, to, to develop as much as he did over the summer. And that I think is what led to Duke winning that championship in 2010. So there's an element of, of like opportunity cost where if Matt Hurt is here, Wendell Moore has not developed as much as he did over the summer to become the leader uh, of the team at both ends of the court that he is this year. So all that said, Jason, I think I agree with you. I think DJ Stewart would bring the most kind of different look for Duke this season. If, if there's one area where Duke has struggled, it has been in the backcourt, uh, I think around Jeremy Roach's position, but I don't know that it's entirely Jeremy Roach's fault. And I think that DJ Stewart would bring a different element. The only thing that that sort of prevents me from being really enthusiastic about that is that DJ Stewart leaving was really, and I don't remember the exact timing of this was really a huge part of the, the driver of Trevor Keels coming to join the program. Um, Keels and and Jalen Blake's kind of committed around the same time as I recall, but I don't know if DJ Stewart is here that Duke has Trevor Keels. And if, if they do, he's not playing the kind of minutes that he is and you don't get that, that extra development out of him. So it's, it's kind of a tough thing. I think I would pick DJ Stewart, but I don't know that any of the guys from last year's team necessarily fit on this roster the way that it has come together. I agree with you. And, and by the way, I wanted to add something. I was sort of saving this for the end about Henry Coleman. That's why I didn't mention him in my initial thing. Um, I, I don't think Henry Coleman makes much of a difference on this year's team, given our roster construction. I don't think he plays very much at all. I'd love to have Henry Coleman back because I, I want Henry Coleman, you know, I want third and fourth year Henry Coleman, or maybe even a fifth year, um, you know, if he sticks around, uh, which I think is very possible in college basketball. Uh, so, so I would, you know, to some extent, I want Henry Coleman back because I think he's a guy who's going to be in college for a while playing basketball. And, and that's exciting to me. And I think uh, it, it'd be really fun to have him down the line. I don't think he helps this year's team, but I'd want him back because it would mean maybe I'd get him next year and the year after and the year after. Donald, your, your answer on this question, who do you want back? Yeah, for me, I, I think it's also, it was for me, it was between Goldwire and DJ Stewart. Goldwire, because not necessarily because of leadership. I think you can never have too much leadership on a team. But I think with the defensive-minded focus that this team has, he would fit in on more on the de- defensive end. Also wouldn't take shots away from our offensive stars. DJ Stewart, on the other hand, I think his personality, I think his charisma, and also his offense fits in with this team as well. And like you guys said, I think that I think is a little bit more important than the defensive end where we do have a pretty good defensive team. So I would also go with DJ Stewart. Okay, guys, we got one more question before we're going to take a quick break. Um, And and that question is about recruiting. Uh, It's from Drew Davidson, and he wants to know, what does Duke's ideal recruiting class construction looks like? Um, You know, uh, he said, we currently build our classes with a majority of recruits being five-star prospects who are very, very talented, but are expected to leave after, after one, maybe two years. I think mostly expected to leave after one year. Would we prefer if we had a bigger focus on four-star recruits who might stay longer? Should we have larger classes that fill up more scholarship spots or keep them smaller? That's, that's Drew's question. Um, so uh, Donald, 
I will let you tackle this one first. What's the ideal Duke recruiting class look like? Not in terms of the names of the players, but you know, the sort of type of recruit. I think there's a balance that needs to be struck here. And, you know, I, I think most Duke fans would say, Hey, you know, we want to have the best players come to Duke, but you can't always have all the best players, right? Like you can't have, you know, a, a class like Zion, RJ and cam only comes once in a generation. It just seems for us that generations every few years, which is fine. But I think the balance is this, you have some five stars that are, that are the best in a class. You pair them with a few four or five stars that, you expect to maybe stay a couple of years, two to three years. And then you pair that with maybe a one or two veterans from the transfer portal. I don't want the transfer portal to be used like some teams are using them to kind of fill their lineup, uh, their starting line, especially with guys that, you know, hey, they didn't recruit well, so we're going to go get some guys from the transfer portal. But as we've seen with Theo John uh, this year, there are definitely guys who can fill in some gaps. They can fill in some holes and also be able to provide that veteran experience of saying, hey, guys, I know how to play college basketball. I have done it for two, three, four years, whatever that is. So I think there is a balance of not necessarily getting a transfer guy every single year, but where you see there's a, there's a hole that you need a fill. I think someone from the transfer portal could be there to fill that hole in and also provide again, this, the veteran leadership of people who can like who, who have played college basketball and you don't have to reteach that experience to them. I would describe any, uh, guy that, that Duke wants to go after regardless of age as a talented Duke player. And what I mean by that is talent, talent is sort of the, the, the first filter for Duke, for, for John Shire and his coaching staff as they're going out and looking for players, whether that means high school players, whether that means freshmen who are transferring, seniors who are transferring. I think talent is, is the most important thing because that's, that, that's where the games are won. Um, the, the, the teams that win championships recruit great players, whether that's Duke or Gonzaga or Villanova or North Carolina, wherever that is, Baylor, uh, any of these programs are recruiting talented guys. The difference for Duke is when I say that I want talented Duke players, that's the, like, talent identification is actually, I don't think is the hard part for, for the Duke coaching staff because the Duke coaching staff can just pull up the, the list of the, the top 50 or 60 recruits according to any of the scouting services and, and kind of have most of that work done for them. The hard part for them is finding Duke guys, guys who want to buy into the rigor of being a Duke basketball player, of being at Duke University, of being a Duke student. I know that being a, a student athlete at Duke is, or, or being a basketball player is not necessarily the same as just being a regular student at Duke. But I think that there is an element of that culture that seeps into the athletic department where those are the guys that John Shire and, and Nolan Smith and, and the crew are looking for guys who want to be at Duke, whether that means that they're there for one year or two years or four years, I don't think matters so much nowadays. The thing that we've lost in the era of player empowerment, whatever you want to call it, where the, the athletes are, are more welcome to transferring more, more regularly, get playing time immediately, go to the league, go play overseas, what have you is that there's less of an emphasis on the long-term development at the college level. And I think that there, there's a sort of old school argument that that is, you know, watering down the sport. It's making the, the brands of these, of these programs like Duke sort of less important to the, to the players than, than they might have been previously. I think those things are still strong as long as you find guys who are willing to buy in. And by the way, again, 
sort of going back once upon a time, the, the feeling was, I, I think we would have said this eight or 10 years ago, it's tough to build a really good team out of mostly younger players because they're not as experienced. I think the, the student athletes nowadays coming up from high school and playing at AAU are more exposed to high level training and, and the pressures of being a college basketball player or even a professional basketball player. They're much more exposed to that. I think than players were a generation ago. I'm less concerned about there being uh, less experience on the court for Duke as I am about there being guys who aren't Duke guys on this team. I think like Paulo Bencaro, for example, seems like a very mature player to me from what we've seen this year. He is, he's as mature as I think a, a Duke sophomore or junior may have been 10, 15 years ago. And that's because he's, he's been through the ringer already. He's played on high level teams. He's played tough competition. He's been in, in, in these kinds of environments, maybe not in front of, you know, as big of a crowd, but, but that pressure has been on him for the last few years of his quote unquote career. So I'm worried about, I, so I, to, to take it back to the question specifically, I kind of don't care if they're freshman recruits who are very highly touted or, or transfers who come in or, or less highly touted. I want them to be talented and I want them to be Duke guys. And whether that means that Duke is bringing in a class that's a mix, like, you know, half and half between, between high school players and transfers, or if it's majority transfers, I, I kind of don't see the distinction and, and I don't care as much about what year they're in as much as their, their buy-in to the program. Guys, for me, I think this is easy. I, I want Duke to continue doing exactly what they've been doing. Duke should go after as many top-tier, you know, generational talent, five-star players as they positively absolutely can. Uh, with, with Sam's caveat, which is a very, very good one, that they be guys who fit into the Duke program, that they buy into what Duke expects of them. As Coach K has often talked about, you know, you, you don't have to be here a long time, but you have to unpack your bags when you get here. And, and so far, Duke has done an incredible job of doing that over the years. I, I can think of very few, I'm trying to think if I can think of any recruits, really. There, there may be one or two, I'm not going to name names, who I didn't feel like were all about Duke and all about the team and all about the team's success in their time on campus, even if their time on campus was very, very short. So I don't want, I don't think Duke needs to change the, the recruiting that they've been doing much at all. Uh, look, I'd, I'd love for guys to stick around a little bit more. Uh, I love that Wendell Moore, who was a top 20 recruit, but not like he wasn't top 10. Um, Wendell Moore ended up being here for, for three years so far. I don't know that we're going to get a fourth year out of him, but his third year is truly incredible and is an integral part of the current success that we're having. But that doesn't happen automatically. You can't, you can't, Wendell Moore's a five-star recruit. You can't predict which one of those five-star recruits are going to get enough playing time that they stick around, but not so much playing time that they, um, that they look like clear NBA prospects. I mean, it's, it's really hard to figure out. A year ago, we thought that Jamin Brakefield was going to stick around Duke. We thought that DJ Stewart was probably going to stick around Duke. Neither one of them did. We got a second year out of Matthew Hurt that no one expected. Um, it's just hard to tell. So as far as I'm concerned, you go get the best guys you can every single year, and you mix them in with other guys who feel, pieces feel like they fit together. Jaden Shoot being one of them. Jaden Shoot, I don't think it's going to be one and done. I think we're going to have several years of him in the program, and that's thrilling and that's fun. But but this Duke team's not going to be built around Jaden Shoot. Um, it's going to be built around five star, top tier NBA lottery prospects. Another aspect to this that 
has changed over the last few years as the as the player mobility has has increased is we still have 13 scholarships available for for Duke and for other programs but at, at Duke you know every season six maybe seven rarely eight guys get significant playing time which means that there will always be five or six scholarship players who are for the most part on the bench and when when I say that Duke has to find Duke guys, part of that is sitting down with them and having the honest conversation that, look, you are very talented. You are worthy of being in this program that is chasing championships every year. But if you are the eighth best player on this team, which you might be, or if you're the 10th best player on this team, you are unlikely to see the court unless you improve and get better than your teammates. And that is a that's a tough recruiting pitch to have to deliver because like, look at a guy like Henry Coleman who seemed totally bought in, but transferred because he said, look, I'm not getting, if, if Paulo Bancaro is here, I'm not getting playing time with on this team. And, and I want to be able to play those minutes and that is fine. I don't think we begrudge his decision to do that, but it is. So, it, so it, it, it's one of those, you know, tough things that the coaching staff has to do. And, and I've seen stories about how, there are uh, coaches who have left the profession in recent years. And you can even look at some of the, the, the top guys like Roy Williams and even Mike Krzyzewski deciding to retire or younger coaches who have decided to just go pursue other jobs because the, the ask of them now is greater than it's ever been because you're having to basically constantly re-recruit your own players because they can always decide to, to transfer or, or leave uh, if they're not happy with their playing time or their situation. That is making this job a lot harder than it was, I think, in, in years past. Look, Jalen Blakes is going to be the next sort of interesting conversation that Duke has to have. He's a guy who has not played very much and is, doesn't figure to play very much except in ACC games that aren't very close. You hope that he's going to stick around. We, you know, we heard from his coach when, when we interviewed him here on the podcast. This is a guy who expects to be at Duke for four years and expects to work his way into having a bigger role over the years. We would have said the same thing, though, about Henry Coleman. We probably would have said the same thing about Jamin Brakefield, and, and they both moved on. I really hope Jalen Blake sticks around. I see a lot of things to like in his game. But he's not going to be a star at Duke, I, I, I think, probably never in his career. When you look at who Duke has coming in as point guards, and it's like Caleb Foster, Jeremy Roach is still on the roster. But I hope he sticks around, and, and I want kids like that to stick around and develop and become junior and senior leaders. Maybe they are, like I said, maybe they aren't the star of the team, but there ain't nothing wrong with being the, I don't know, the fourth, fifth best player on a, on a Duke basketball team and being one of the team captains. That's a heck of a role to have. I think a lot of kids should embrace that role maybe more than they do. And you see that on this year's team in Joey Baker, who is a senior and is coming off the bench, still playing considerable minutes for Duke, but he has embraced that leadership role from the bench. And that has been a real good part of this team kind of buy into this entire season and, and the role that they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, love Joey. Absolutely. Love Joey Baker, what he's given to the team this year. It, it can't be understated how, how important that is. And, and by the way, he's another guy who has improved tremendously in his time. The way he takes the ball, to the basket this year, puts it on the floor and creates his own shot is something I never thought we'd see from Joey Baker in his career. So, all right, guys, we're going to take a break. You know, we asked the audience, we asked you guys to give us some silly questions. We got some good ones. Those are coming up right after the break.
Okay, I hope you enjoyed that quick break. Time for the silly stuff. We love it when you guys do this. And uh, the K-Man, David Kerman, comes in again. Home run on this one. He asks, how did every time we touch become a thing? He said, I remember singing the standard fight songs, Devil in the Blue Dress, stuff like that. But any ideas how Duke started singing this weird Euro pop song? What the heck is this? So uh, before you guys talk about it, because by the way, every time we touch was a thing, you guys have experienced it way more than I have. I'm a little bit older. <laughs> was not a thing during my era. Uh, so I, I went out there and I actually found um, the, there's an article. There was an article in USA Today, believe it or not, in 2017 about every time we touch. And it, it says that it was brought in by the, uh, the Duke band director, Jeff Awe or Al, I'm not sure, A-U, however you pronounce that last name. He was the Duke band director, and he, was, he wanted to bring some newer stuff into the game day experience at Duke, that they were mostly playing older songs. And, and at the time he wanted to do it, every time we touched was sort of a popular song, you know, out there in the nightclubs and stuff like that. And, and it, just, it just caught on, like, instantly. And, uh, uh, you know, they started playing it, and everybody just went crazy. And, and so that's how it became a thing at, at Duke. But guys, <laughs> y'all love this more than I do. I'm a little bit like, eh. I like the way the fans react to it, I guess. Donald, what you got on it? Yeah, so here's the funny thing about me. I graduated two years before every time we touch was written. So it was not a thing that, that everyone got hyped to when I was in school. That honor, and I still think that honor should belong to rock lobster uh because that was the that was the song that got everybody hyped they'd only play once a game and that would be the one that got everybody both downstairs and upstairs out of their seats having said that i have come to appreciate every time we touch and come to appreciate it being a part of the cameron experience so i i really like that we have embraced this even though it really doesn't make a lot of sense it's just kind of a quirky thing but a lot of duke traditions started because they made no sense right like that's just how some things become legend and become part of this whole aura that is uh, Duke basketball and Kville and Cameron indoor stadium. So uh, shout out to the students for making it something where it is, will carry on. And honestly, there's going to be a point where a new song comes in a band record. will probably do the same thing that he did with every time we touch and a new song will come around. And then all three of us can be like, I, I missed the days of every time we touch being the staple at Cameron uh, indoor stadium. Uh, so uh, it, what you're talking about there, Donald, we had a saying in my day um, when, when the crazies were first really becoming a, a national phenomenon. Our saying was more random in Cameron. We love the random, you know, the guys who dress up in the cookie monster outfits and stuff like that. That, that was the thing in my day it was like the, the cookie monster outfit and, and other, you know, stuff that just you're like, I don't know what the heck that is, but that's just people having fun and doing something crazy and distracting. And that, that gets the crowd and the team and the whole place into a, a different level, a different atmosphere. That's what Cameron's all about. Every time you touch is certainly random. Sam? It's so funny because the first time I went to a Duke basketball game was in the spring of 20, 2007, which according to that USA Today article and, and the Chronicle article that it links to is that was the first year that that Duke played, that the Duke band played every time we touched was in the 06, 07 season. That was my senior year of high school. And I knew that I was coming to Duke the, the following year to, to be a student. So one game that year, and then basically every home game, you know, during 
during the, the school year for the next four years. And from my vantage point, Duke has always played this game at, at, or has always played this song at games. Like it's been a staple of the Cameron experience as long as I have been experiencing it, which is now, you know, only 15 years of games. But even by the time I got there in its second season, they played it every game. Uh, the, the, like the band always played it. I, I guess the one sort of interesting like gripe that I have is that when I got there, the like while I was in school was when Cameron was transitioning from the band playing all the music to it being a mix of the band and the loudspeakers. And so it used to be that it was just the band playing every time we touch. And now it's usually the loudspeakers that do it. And, and so I like, I would, I would sort of get on my, uh, my old timer uh, bent and be like, well, I remember when, when only the band played every time we touch and it wasn't, it wasn't coming out over the loudspeaker. So uh, I, I think of it as being, as being a band thing. And by the way, Donald brought up the rock lobster. I was very glad to hear that. They don't really do the rock lobster anymore, or if they do, I, I think I, I heard it the last time I was there, but most people don't know all the dance moves anymore to the rock lobster, but there are dance moves associated with every time we touch. So whatever, whatever sort of get, gets the people into it, I think that's the key. And what Jason said is, you know, you want to keep, keep Cameron, you know, strange uh, and, and, and keep it goofy. I like another sort of change that has happened uh, in the crazies that I don't like because I think it's less goofy is that when the opposing team are introduced, they'll say, you know, the starting forward for, for North Carolina, Tyler Hansborough, and then everyone says, hi, Tyler. And the last few years they've started doing, hi, Tyler, you suck. Uh, and, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get on the high horse about like, oh, it's, it's too crass. Cause there's plenty of examples of the Cameron crazies being crass, but I think that just the high Tyler was funnier than the high Tyler. You suck. So I agree. Um, as long as it's, as long as it's goofy, I think that it's, I think that it's fun. So I think I, I love every time we touch, I think it's a lot of fun and I love seeing people get excited about it. They still play it. Like if you go to shooters, uh, any weekend, that you go to shooters, they're playing every time we touch at least once every single, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night at shooters. So it is, it is ingrained now at Duke. Uh, so one thing I want to point out about every time we touch, it's not that the song is great. It's the reaction of the crazies. It's the way the whole crowd gets into it. Uh, that's what makes it great. So to some extent, it's not that we're celebrating the song. We're celebrating how all of us have a shared tradition and a, uh, and a shared reaction to it. That's, that's what makes this really cool. All right, guys, we're, we're moving on to our last question. God, I love this. <laughs> uh, Manny Matthews wrote to us. Manny's the man. He had a specific question for each one of us. Folks, what's coming up next has nothing to do with basketball. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll start with Donald, because yours at least has a little bit to do with sporting events. Manny says, for Donald, I want to know, you travel to a ton of sporting events all over the world. Everyone knows this about you, Donald. He wants to know your three favorite venues for a sporting event, and not including Cameron. I mean, Cameron would be number one. There's no question about that. So name your three favorite venues for a sporting event all over the world, Donald. Okay, so I'm going to start with some honorable mentions because this list can't just be three. Uh, sorry, it, it just can't. There's been a lot of places that- Manny demands that three. Really, really Manny say. says three. <laughs> says three, but I have a top three. Okay, so the honorable mentions I'll say is Aviva Stadium in Dublin. That's the home of the Irish national team. Uh, RFK right here in DC, RIP, and uh, Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. 
only for the USV Mexico game. It would be in the top three if it was something I'd go to a lot. But for USA Mexico, Azteca is definitely up there. I, I've heard. So by the way, my, I've heard Azteca is like un, unbelievable. Like the crowd is dangerous. <laughs> uh, it's fine. I've never had any problems there. Um, but I'm also I also grew up outside Detroit, so nothing scares me. Um, so going to Mexico City, I know Spanish. I know I know the crowds. They they do not phase me, but it is a fun fun place to watch a game, especially the USA v Mexico game. But here are my top three: the Big House, Michigan Stadium. Seen three sports in that place: football, soccer, hockey. Honestly, outside of Cameron, my favorite place in America to watch a sporting event. The second, RIP to this one: the Palace of Auburn Hills, the arena that inspired all arenas. Any arena that you have seen built for basketball or hockey in the last 25 years draws inspiration from the Palace of Auburn Hills. It was renovated literally just one time, and that was to change the signage because in, 20, in the 30 years it was around, it was so perfect that no one had to update it whatsoever, and every single team would come in to take notes about what was nice about it to create the modern arena that we have now in the NBA and the NHL. And then finally, in the soccer world, the office, which is the nickname for National Stadium at Independence Park in Kingston, the home of the Jamaican national team, both for soccer and for track and field. Usain Bolt, where he lines up for the 100-meter dash, I have celebrated by lining up in set position after a USA goal at the office. The office is one of the awesome venues in, in North America and the Caribbean to go visit, so I highly recommend A, Again, if you are somebody who speaks English and is from America, you are basically honor bound to go to Jamaica at least once in your lifetime. You will not regret it. Two, when you do, definitely go out and check the office out because it is a fantastic venue, great food, great amenities, great sight lines, a, a pristine view of a mountain behind you, and also the soccer on the field is dope. So those are my top three, Michigan Stadium, the Palace RIP, and the office. Okay, so I'm going to do I'm, – I'm saving Sam's question. Man, Manny gave us a specific question for each one of us that relates to who we are. I'm saving Sam's for last. <clears throat> His question for me relates to movies. As everybody knows, I'm, I'm a film critic. Um, he wanted me to name my top five movies of this year and my top five sports movies of all time. My top five movies of this year are Licorice Pizza, which is in theaters right now. Please, please go see it, people. It is hysterical and really brilliant. Some of the best acting you'll see all year. The Power of the Dog, which is the best acting you will see all year. It's on Netflix. West Side Story. I can't, I don't understand why more people aren't going to see West Side Story. I guess they just feel like it's older. It, it's, it's perhaps Steven Spielberg's best directing job since Lincoln easily and maybe even longer than that. It's really, it's incredibly staged. Please go see West Side Story. Tick, Tick, Boom, which is also on Netflix. Lin-Manuel Miranda's first directorial uh, job and Andrew Garfield just knocks it out of the park. And then I was sort of torn on the fifth one. It's either the last duel or King Richard, um, both of which are, are, are really excellent, really interesting films. I guess I'll, I'll say King Richard is my fifth best movie of the year. And then my top five Loves sports King movies Richard. of all time. I, I've got, I got seven for my top five. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in order. Um, Field of Dreams, Victory, which I, I, we have a generation of people now probably who haven't seen Victory, greatest soccer movie of all time, um, no question about it. Uh, the Natural, 
Hoosiers, Bull Durham, Caddyshack, and Hoop Dreams. And, and there, are, there are probably people out there who have not seen Hoop Dreams, which is probably one of the 10 best documentaries ever made and easily the best sports documentary ever made. Amazing, amazing film. So that's my top five, my top seven sports movies of all time. Field of Dreams, Victory, The Natural, Hoosiers, Bull Durham, Caddyshack, and Hoop Dreams. There's some of those probably that some people haven't seen. Please go out and see those movies. Jason, I am disappointed in your, uh, your golf erasure because Tin Cup and Happy Gilmore both belong on, on anyone's top sports movie list. And, uh, and I'm upset about that. Uh, they, they are both fine films. They are not as good as those other seven. That's, if I was going to 10, um, not Happy Gilmore, but Tin Cup probably gets in there. I haven't thought about it that much to get all the way down to 10. Like Breaking Away probably gets in there if I'm going down to 10. I'm not sure of some of the others. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. You guys ever see The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh? No, I don't. Yes. I, I probably see. I probably see like five percent as many movies as as Jason does. So I, I bet it's uh, less than that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last silly question from Manny. Manny comes through in a big way. He says, Sam, I know you're a big music guy. I'm betting you've written a few songs for yourself. Play at least some of the best song you've ever written on the podcast. And he wants to hear you sing as well. Sam, what are you going to play for us? All right. So. Manny, I need to disappoint you a little bit because I haven't written that much music. I wrote a song in high school for my then girlfriend that I performed at a talent show. And I think it was really good. And I performed it on the piano and I sang, um, but I don't remember it now. And I have written oh. very, I have written very little music actually since then. Um, I like playing other people's music as uh, listeners who have maybe been with us for a little bit longer may remember i started playing the mandolin back in early 2016 this will be i guess i'm now coming up on on five years as a as a mandolin player i've got uh i played the guitar and the piano as a child and uh, i'm sure i referenced it multiple times on this show that i was in an acapella group at duke i was in speak of the devil we performed the national anthem uh, a few times while i was in school most memorably before the Duke versus Michigan State game in 2010, when uh, Kyrie Irving sort of had his his national, uh, you know, arrival on the national scene was against Michigan State. So that was a lot of fun. But uh, in the interest of it being a Duke show, I did prepare uh, a little bit for you. So uh, this will be a bit of a callback to uh, what one of the things we were talking about uh, just a few minutes ago. So uh, I've got my mandolin here. I'm going to try to sing this, and uh, I hope I don't get judged too negatively. So here we go. Gentlemen, can you hear this? Yes, yes Sound we great, can. man. Go here for it. Here we go. I still hear your voice when you sleep next to me. I still hear your touch in my dreams. Forgive me my weakness, but I don't know why. Without you, it's hard to survive. Cause every time we touch, I get this feeling. Every time we kiss, I swear I can fly. Can you feel my heart beat fast? I want this to last. Need you by my side. Every time we touch, I feel the static. And every time we kiss, I reach for the sky. Can't you feel my heart beat so I can't let you go? 
want you in my life. And I'm not going to do the rest. Um, but that was Every Time We Touch by Cascada in the bluegrass style. Sam, that was, that was, I can think of no better way. Brilliant. To end 2021 than with Sam playing us out. It was so bad. It was so bad that my girlfriend appeared in the middle of the performance uh, off screen to gape at me that, (laughs) that I have done this publicly. Uh, I, it was not bad at all, man. It was way better than anything I could do. I thought it was very impressive. It was good. You know, by the way, we got, we got several questions about bluegrass. Sam, do you want to, what, what do people ask you about bluegrass? I didn't even emailing me. I love, I love getting, I love getting emails about bluegrass music. So um, we had uh, someone wrote, wrote in to ask us about Balsam Range, which was great. Uh, somebody else asked us about Delta Ray, who are a uh, shout out to my folk, man, Lamb. Yeah, that's right. Folk band out of uh, who are who are Duke folks um, that, are, that are pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, always send me questions about bluegrass music. I love talking about bluegrass music. So that's going to wrap it up here. And by the way, even though the mailbag has now been answered and I guess is empty, fill it up again, folks dbrpodcast at gmail.com dbrpodcast at gmail.com that's the way to reach out to us we had a great great fun time here answering all your questions uh we are saying goodbye to 2021 i am jason evans he is sam klein he is donald wine this is the duke basketball report podcast thanks for listening this year we had a great time with you i think 2022 is going to be special if we ever get over this damn COVID thing god can we play a basketball game sometime soon That'd be awful nice. Please, please, everybody have a happy and safe New Year's celebration. We will talk to you in 2022. Until then, Duke Band, play us out. Take us home. Goodbye. Sam, you didn't like that tease? That was fine. <laughs> oh, you scrunched up your face. You're like, mm. I was, I may have been, I may have been playing music uh, surreptitiously. And uh, I, I make faces when, uh, when I'm concentrating.